0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today.
2: I'm Gary O'Reilly, and I'm Chuck Nice, and this is Playing Playing With Science. Science. Today's a show about football, or soccer if you prefer, Mm. a look not through the eyes of a player or a fan, but through the cascading waterfall of zeros and ones that data analysts love to hide behind.
1: Yes, and soccer, or football if Mm -hmm. you prefer, has long been considered Moneyball 2.0, a sport at the elite level that's right for a data dump and seismic shift in the thinking
2: on how all sport is viewed, conceived, and enjoyed. Yes, and joining us to pull back the curtain and reveal all is one-off, if not one, of the world's leading experts, analytics, Dan Altman, the founder of North Yard Analytics, a man whose opinion and thoughts are sought of far and wide.
1: Yes, and later we'll also hear from Dr. Howard Hamilton, the founder
2: and CEO of Soccer Metrics Research. Yes, but yep. first, Dan Altman. Dan, welcome to Playing With Science.
3: Thanks very much. Great to be here.
2: Thank you. Well, let's so as people listening know exactly why you're here. Sports analyst and professor of economics at NYU's Stern School of Business. Mm-hmm. The list goes on. Author of Outrageous Fortunes, The 12 Surprising Trends That Will Reshape the Global Economy. Fascinating. I think I might need that book. Oh, uh, yeah, we yep. all need that book. Founder of North Yard Analytics and leading sports data consultancy. So, have I done you justice, sir?
3: Yeah, you've even mentioned things from my former life as an economist. So, uh, yeah. more than justice.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. man. All right. So, here we go. Let's take a little trip back down memory lane. When did data analytics, and I use this pun intentionally, kick in for football, and uh, who drove it? Oh, I see what you did there. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, some people would argue that it was Charles Reap uh, after the Second World War mm-hmm. who was standing on the sidelines out in the cold uh, taking things down on a notepad who, who really got things going. But I don't think that it had the same sort of traction that it did, let's say, in baseball a few decades ago with the emergence of Bill James and his acolytes. Uh, It's really just been in the past decade, I would say, that sports analytics, as we know it in other sports, especially in the United States, has started to percolate into football in the great reaches of Europe and and possibly even South America.
2: What is the typical kind of data? I mean, we know we can all look at who won the game because of the number of goals scored. But what is the typical type of data that is being used and who actually is capturing this?
3: So there are two major types of data. One is match data that comes from the events that happen on the ball. And you can get several companies that will provide you with a feed live or after the match of up to, let's say, 2,000 events that occur, every pass, every tackle, every shot. And they'll tell you a little bit about where it happened as well as when it happened and some specifics of how it happened, but really just on the ball data. So with that kind of data, you know the narrative of the match, but you don't know what all 22 players and referees in the ball were doing at every moment. For that, you need tracking data, which is provided by another set of companies quite often, uh, and they will be tracking every moving object on the pitch for let's say 30 frames per second. Wow. So it generates a huge amount of data uh, just for one match, more perhaps for one match than you would get for a whole season of the event data. And the key is to try and meld those things together so that you know what everybody's doing and you know the context as well.
1: Wow, that sounds insane. I mean, you know, when you talk about that much data, which by the way, could only exist in this day and age, if you think about it, I mean, you need a huge amount of computing power to make that mm. happen. But let me ask you this. Um, how is it used? I mean, how can you how can you even make heads or tails of that much data? And uh, does it do anything for player evaluation, game strategy? What? How is
3: it used most commonly? There's a ton of things that you can do with this kind of data. And I would say that even as the things we can do and implement within a soccer club are growing, because there's greater understanding of these things among the coaching staff, the scouts, et cetera, The amount of things that we can do is growing even faster. So the gap between what we can implement and what we can do is actually widening, even as we get better at using the data, which is a a weird thing. But we use most commonly the match data for something like scouting, Uh. because we can get that same type of match data from dozens of leagues around the world. The tracking data are much more difficult to come by, and they're often recorded in different formats in different leagues. So for scouting, if you want to look at everybody using the same benchmarks all around the world, a player from Brazil or a player from Croatia, you're really confined to using the match data. When it comes to tracking data, you're much more often trying to examine your own players or your own team's performance because you are collecting that data inside your own stadium. Sometimes you might be able to get it for other clubs in your league, but it's tougher to get it further afield. Hmm. So –
2: if, as we've said, goal scored the ultimate stat in any data collection for for a football game, what are the main areas you find coaches, players, rather than the fans outside? And I want to exclude fans because we, there's no professional <laughs> football without fans. Um, what do you find are the most important metrics that people are always focusing on?
3: Well, it's interesting because there's just a huge amount of diversity in what the coaches want to hear. Ah. I, I, with one club I was working with, I went from a assistant coach, because typically I'll be working with the assistant coach on a day-to-day basis you know, yeah. while the manager or the head coach is dealing with the players. Yeah, an assistant coach who just wanted to see a plot of all the goals scored, let's say, from corners from the whole league. And I didn't know really what that was meant to describe.
2: Oh, I think as as I That's what we
3: were going to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, we're not playing the whole league every weekend. We're playing a specific club. Uh, but that's what he wanted to see. And then the next guy who came in, because as you know, in European football, the managers and coaches can change quite frequently. Yes. Uh, the, the next guy who came in said, I want to see the expected goal networks for every club that we're going to play based on the opponents that were most similar to us in playing style measured by these technical attributes.
1: You've got to be kidding
2: me. That was a request? <laughs> on a Wednesday. That was a request. Yeah. <laughs> only, only on a Wednesday. Only on a Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. What's interesting me, the assistant coach who wanted all of the goals scored directly from a corner kick. Yeah. My imagination, because I used to be a defender, I'm now thinking, how do I set up? to negate vulnerability from the broad spectrum of what I'd be looking to face. I would then be looking on a game-by-game basis at the opponent and how they set themselves up for set plays and corner kicks. But just as an overarching, should I be going man-to-man? Should I be playing zonal? Or should I go hybrid mm-hmm. to best solve the most things that I would be facing? That Just when you said that, my little... Cobweb so I think brain. that's
3: that's a totally <laughs> valid point for two situations. One is when you're trying to set up for the whole season. You know How should you be training on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. The second is for scouting. If I'm looking for a center back, mm-hmm. I want the kind of guy who's going to be well-placed, well-positioned to deal with those threats. But – this particular coach wanted to see that chart every week and you know you're only adding a couple goals to it every week, so it would be pretty much the same chart every right,
2: week. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh- <laughs> um, in which case I've got no thought to offer on the back of- <laughs> yeah. every week indeed. So how, how does right. it how productive is this data avalanche? When it comes to analysing individual players and then you say, right, this is our player or this group of players are our intended targets. How successful are they with A, identification and then B, bringing them to say, I'm guessing a European league and then being a success within the clubs that you've worked with?
3: Well, I'll give you a a prime example. Um, I I worked until recently uh, with uh, DC United, which is part of an ownership group that I was serving as head of strategy for, Uh and uh, we had a signing that made some news over the summer. Uh Um, A guy named Wayne Rooney, uh, England's all-time leading scorer, um, came over uh, after spending a season at his original hometown club Leicester, uh, sorry, Everton, I should say, another blue team, Everton, uh, and before that, he was with Manchester United for many years. And, uh, you know, it, we, we were going to spend a huge amount of money for an MLS team to bring him to the United States. Uh, and we were going to just get one player rather than signing, let's say, a few young prospects from Latin America or something. Um, so it was it was a risky proposition in some senses. And of course, we wanted to be able to predict how he was going to perform in his new league. Uh, Well, one of the things that I've worked on for many years is creating league adjustments so that we can look at a player's performance in one league and try and predict how well he'll play in another league. And we looked at him at a couple different positions. And as far as his attacking output, he was exactly where we thought he would be coming to MLS. And that prediction was based on thousands of matches, dozens of players who've moved not just between MLS and the Premier League, but also at one remove, you know, a player who might have moved from, uh, let's say, France to uh, the Premier League to MLS. Well, then, now you have a link from France all the way to MLS, right? Yeah. Um, so so we can make lots of connections to try and see how players might perform if they go from one league to another. And in this case, it was spot on. And as you saw, there was good reason to sign him.
2: Um, wow. If, if you're not familiar with the the Wayne Rooney story, Chuck and, and I'll, I won't give the whole <laughs> born to now. Just if you look at his time at DC United in MLS, a big fanfare, a major coup for the club, so congratulations to DC United for that. Um, they go into a brand new stadium, Audi uh-huh. Stadium in DC, and the question mark remains against Wayne Rooney. Have you bought into him after the end, after all the good stuff has gone? What I'm interested in is what metrics you used, if you can give any of your IPOA or give us an understanding of what you would focus on that made you believe this guy still had enough left in the tank to get people off their seats and into the stadium.
3: So there are a lot of different statistics that get bandied around these days in soccer. Uh, But I preferred, and I I started out this way probably because of my background as an economist, I preferred to create a holistic model of the game. Uh Uh-huh. So I have one model of winning, actually two models that I use side by side. And every action gets a value within that model. And so we try to see if we combine all the actions that a player is going to contribute, how are they going to stack up? What's their overall contribution to winning going to be? And, and does, then,
1: that, does that ex- express itself in a numeric value? Is that what happens? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yes.
3: And then we adjust that numeric value based on the league where we think they're going to play. So, you know, if Rooney in the Premier League, one of the toughest leagues in the world, if not the toughest, um, was going to come to MLS, which as Sean Harvey, who's the chief executive of the English Football League, said at a conference I attended two days ago, is probably somewhere between the second and third tiers in England. So he's not just going from the first tier in England to the second, but he's maybe going from the bottom of, to the bottom of the second or, or maybe the top of the third tier. It's quite a big jump. Did you feel and that
2: so, assessment was slightly harsh?
3: <laughs> actually, my statistics agree with it. So okay. uh, I, All right. I didn't think so. And that actually brings up an interesting point. You know, We could see that Rooney was going to be making this big jump. And so even as a guy who looked past his prime, perhaps in the Premier League, he was going to kill it in MLS. But you know, the that adjustment used to be smaller. It used to be that MLS was sort of closer to mid-table championship, which is the second tier mm-hmm. in England. And you gotta ask yourself, well, MLS has been getting better. Why is the gap between MLS and the English leagues growing? And it's because the English leagues are just getting better faster. Yeah. I mean, there's so much money in the championship right now mm-hmm. through the parachute payments from the Premier League and all of these owners pouring money into their clubs to try and get to the Premier League, that the, the quality is just going up really Dan,
2: fast. Dan, I'm just going to explain something for Chuck so as this gets quantified it, with a dollar sign in front of it. Yeah. If you are relegated, or f- so finishing the bottom three, and Dan knows this, in the Premier League, right. and you get relegated into what is now the championship, the second tier of English soccer, football, mm-hmm. you, will, you will earn more money than the team that wins the UEFA Champions League. Wow, fact. So you're in the bottom of yeah, you're relegated, but you will have earned more television money than the winner of the Champions League. That's why this acceleration f- with English soccer is so, so quick. Wow. am i i mean i'm I'm in the right place without giving too many numbers. Uh, it, that is the principle behind this. Is that right, Dan?
3: Yeah, and you know the thing is that the Premier League keeps growing mostly because of the foreign business that they're doing. Uh, uh, the the price of the TV rights for the UK has sort of topped out, yeah. but the price of the foreign broadcast rights keeps growing.
1: Yeah, I mean they're they're here they're they're on Saturday morning here, that's for sure. You see, yeah. the-
2: I mean it is the most valuable sporting property on the planet. Wow, without a doubt. What I'm what I'm interested, in, I'm, I've got to focus on Wayne Rooney, not because it's Wayne Rooney, but how you quantify Because Wayne has something you can't, to my mind, and I'm I'm up for being taken to school for this one and learning. How do you quantify his mental attitude towards the game of football?
3: Great question. So the two models that I told you about already are what I call mechanistic models. Uh As I said, they assign a value to every action and we can observe each action and we attach a value to it. I have another model, which I would call an agnostic model which is sort of like a plus minus in hockey or we have adjusted plus minus in the NBA where you're looking at the overall contribution, but you're not saying how the athlete does it.
2: Mm. You
3: know, they're, they're, the, the patron saint of this in the NBA was a guy named Shane Battier. Uh, and there was a big article by Michael Lewis in the New York Times Maps? Magazine yes. saying, why do, why do Battier's teams win, win even though it doesn't score right. a ton of points?
1: Uh, yes. So why is that? Can you, I, I read that article, but go ahead. I want
3: you to say, <laughs> so he 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 makes these intangible contributions. He does things that we don't necessarily track in this mechanistic data. Right. And so I have a very complicated formula based on something called a Shapley value which comes from a Nobel laureate Lloyd Shapley in the 60s and try to figure out this overall contribution and we don't know how we do it. If you take that overall contribution and subtract the mechanistic contribution, what's left are the intangibles and that's how we measure them. Interesting. And we can do it
1: so you're able to assign a value to something that is
3: intangible itself. Yeah. You look at the whole and you take away the stuff you can measure and what's left is the That's
1: freaking fascinating, dude. I
2: can't that is amazing. So well back in the day, and it's it's way back, right? And we're gonna talk through a break and I'll, just before we do, I'll throw this in. We did all of that by standing or sitting in a seat watching. We didn't have numbers. We didn't have any laptops. We yeah. would know that as a fact, right? I'm going to leave you with that. Yeah, because we got, are going to take a break, and are you yeah. going to yeah, gonna have to hold that thought? Hold ah. that thought, right? Ah. Oh, it's
1: killing me. <laughs> Hopefully <ahead>. not. No, <laughs>
2: right. We're going to take a break. More from Dan Altman, who I'll be honest with you, uh, this is as close as I get to nerding out. It's fabulous. I love it, and we'll be back very, very shortly.
3: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
2: Welcome back to Playing With Science. Uh, While we were away, Chuck's head exploded. Yeah. Yeah. but we've managed to bring it back together again. There'll be some pieces missing. I'll look under the table. Uh, right. We are in the company of Dan Altman, who is just outrageously thoughtful on the game of football, a.k.a. soccer, and how you analyse it, not as a coach, but as... As a data data analyst, analyst. how you see things numerically, how you can quantify what is sometimes to people unquantifiable. Yes. And bring it to the table. Chart, let's go again. I was losing my mind (laughs) because I was like,
1: you know, what Dan has done is just brilliant. Uh, You know, and what I call it is filling the negative space, right, Dan? You're filling the negative space. And, you know, so what you said, Gary, was Mm. we used to stand on the sideline. And basically, you were making judgments. So now here's what I want to say. So what what you've done essentially is, and here's what I'm going to ask you, Dan, because this is your model, so you're going to have to be really honest here. With judgments, there are always biases that must be overcome. When you, Dan, build a model, and not just you, I'm talking the collective you, all of you analysts, when you build a model, how do you not build in the biases to that model so that the model itself is kind of mimicking the judgments that may be erroneous, like what Gary was talking about. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So there are always biases for a programmer or whoever's designing a model, mathematician. Um, With one of these agnostic models, we try to cut out those biases because we don't actually say what's important, what's not. We let the model tell us. Okay. but and, And machine learning is really involved in that whole theme as well. But what I do is really complementary to the guy standing on the sideline. Yeah, right? Right. It's not a substitute. Right, And you're much more powerful when you get both of those working together. Now, both of those are going to be wrong sometimes. I mean, couches, coaches and scouts don't like to admit it, but they are wrong sometimes too. Oh, yeah. It's not just the statistical models, which are always going to be wrong sometimes. The key is to be wrong in different ways. <laughs> Because if you're wrong in different ways, when you put those two things together, you can come up with a really good decision algorithm. Uh, I was working with a club in the Premier League, and that's exactly what we did. We had a filter based on all of these metrics that we had coming out of the models. And then when we got a list of players from that filter, we would have a video analyst look at them. If the video analyst thought the player was promising, then we'd have a human scout go to a game and watch the players. And our hit rate going down from that original filter was about 70% which is great, and it gives us plenty of options as recruiters. But when when I was working with a team in MLS, we took it even a step further, and we said, you know, we wanna make sure that we're gonna bring in players from this filter that the coach is gonna like right away. Hmm. So we gave the coach a questionnaire, and we said, here are all the attributes that we're measuring tell us how important they are, either very important, somewhat important, or not at all important. Hmm. And if you said very important, we gave 100% weight to that. If you said somewhat important, we gave 50%. If you said not important, we gave it zero. And then we had a new formula to look for these players in leagues around the world. Then the hit rate started hitting the roof because we would show him guys that were spotted by this wow. bespoke metric, and he loved them.
1: I love
2: that. Bespoke it's inter- metrics.
3: Yes. Uh, it's, uh, uh, right. me Can metrics. you tell
2: us which the Premier League and MLS club is, or would that get you a rap across the knuckles?
3: I have some non-disclosure
2: agreements. Yeah. Fine. Right. I, I thought I might, I might have guessed uh, they were there, but don't mind me asking. You so tried. the thing is, I spent four days in Turin talking with the good people of Juventus. This was back in 98. And I remember sitting in there, and you all know who this is, Roberto Bettiga, the Silver Fox, legendary Italian striker. And I remember sitting in his office with the translator and going through, how do you approach your transfers, your signings? And he said, we do not take the coach knocking on the door and saying, I need a striker. I want a goalkeeper. I need a, a winger. I need a midfield player holding, attacking, whichever it is. What we do is we sit down as a group and then we decide the thoughts of the group and the underlying message is this signing has to be of benefit to Juventus Football Club. What we bring in has to have a value while it's here, but then be a value to us with a plus plus once it leaves. And there will always be something that comes in that breaks that up, Mm. but invariably... That was their model. Interesting. It, was, it was a very interesting thought process. It's, is that thought process in play with more clubs now? Or, as you said, does the weight land in different areas because of the different thinking that's in place?
3: If you had a process like that, Juventus process, mm-hmm. and you didn't have any data analysts, yeah. you would still be ahead of a lot of clubs that do have data analysts and no process. Amazing. Wow. Wow! Because there are some clubs that don't have regular recruiting meetings, not weekly, not monthly. They don't have a recruiting committee. They don't have this filtration via, you know, video analysts and scouts. A coach can come in, you know, a, a couple of weeks before the transfer window opens, put down a list, maybe of two names or three names, and say, "I want these," instead of uh, alternatives of ten at each position. And, and this happens even at clubs at the highest level. And, and if you do that, you're just taking on a huge amount of risk.
2: Dan, you just broke my heart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We were talking about progress and a wonderment in bringing your thinking and your like in, 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 in that part of the game to my passion for football. And then when you tell me there are still clubs anchored into way back into the 20th century. It's heartbreaking to hear that, but well, part of me is not surprised. They'll change when they lose. That's how it works. Oh, by the way. All right, so let's, yeah. let's, I mean, apart from the recruitment side of it, because it does have such a presence as we've, as we've highlighted, and most, most obviously with, with someone like Wayne Rooney, which our American listeners will equate to because of his standout performances this season. What other areas can you take the area of analytics too? For for instance, our team, you're on our team and we have yeah. this group of players, and, but we, we think we can get more of them out of them, but how? What areas do you feel data analytics can move into that would allow us to achieve even more?
3: Well, tactics is a big area and uh, every club I've worked with, we've done pre-match opposition analysis and we do post-match analysis as well to see what's gone right and what's gone wrong. Um, the pre-match packages can be very comprehensive. They can be tailored to each opponent as well. You know, we could look at how their back four distribute the ball. We could look at who the most important nodes in their passing networks are. We can look at how they set up for corners, where the completions are. We can map all of their set pieces. Um, you know, we can could, we could do a bunch of stuff like that. Um, but we can do it for individual players as well. For example, um, the club I worked with recently, Swansea City, sent Jordan Ayew, a Ghanaian striker, on loan to Crystal Palace, uh, yep. one of your former clubs, Gary, this season. Thank you, yes. Um, and it was obviously a benefit to both clubs to have him succeed, right? Because yes. Swansea wanted to see his value increase, and Palace obviously wanted to, him to do well. Um, so I gave their ownership an owner's manual for Jordan IU to show which situations he'd been most successful in, where he'd created the highest quality chances, where he had the best quality touches. And there was a really coherent narrative about how he moved across the pitch and what his options were at each point along the pitch and what other players needed to be in different positions for him to have the maximum effectiveness. And I think that can be a very powerful tool. It's interesting because
2: Crystal Palace have American co-owners who own sports franchises here in the USA. So they're more than aware of this type of thinking. Mm, And it's interesting, you just gave them the roadmap to get more out of one of their players. And that is so granular
1: that I'm wondering, is it, will we see at some point, right now you have um, teams as your client? Will there come a point where your clients are actually agents? who are able to take your information on that granular level and increase the value of the players when they go into negotiations. Are we going to see that
2: happening? Interesting.
3: Yeah, I I think we certainly will. Um, It's now the case that there are enough data providers that agents can get access to the same quality of data as the clubs do. Um, And and we saw something like this happen in hockey. I remember (laughs) a couple of years ago, there was a big contract negotiation for a player. I believe it was with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, uh, you know, the, the, the club knew that this was their guy. This was the guy they wanted. They want they had done all the analytics. And then the agent comes in with a huge binder with all the same numbers. <laughs> he knew just how good his player was. Wow. And he wasn't going to take a dollar less.
2: That's the guy I want as my agent. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. I uh, mean, well, OK, we, we're talking about them and they're not in the room. So let's invite them in, the players. Uh <laughs> some do some don't am i right engage in the analytical process some will tell you they've watched it because the analysts will provide a, a video package mm-hmm. for say a fallback who has a all right we're going to we're going to play paris saint germain so he's 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 a one on one with neymar junior so they'll produce a package on neymar Tracking and mapping. I'm not that if you're going to play against Neymar, you are fully focused because if you're not, you're going well, to get, right. you're, you're going to get smashed smashed your in ass piece. handed to you. Oh, by the way. But you take that sort of one on one confrontation in a game. How many players engage and how many players just don't care?
3: I mean, there, there's a huge variety. Uh, we saw it in the NFL recently. There was a player to whom the team started sending blank tapes to see if he was really watching the video would say, Oh yeah, I watched those blitzes. Yeah. That's awesome. They found that out pretty quick. Um, but, uh, you know, th- there's a variety. I think that it depends on the culture and it depends on the players that you're going to bring in. It starts with the head coach and and filters on down from there. Mm. Uh, at Bolton, for example, when Sam Allardyce was the coach, yes. they had an incredibly intense data culture. They made the players buy into it. They they made sure the players they brought in would. They got down to in terms of granularity, Chuck. It, they got down to where the players were sitting in the video room during the sessions you and then it. testing their comprehension.
1: Unbelievable! <laughs> Unbelievable, man. That's not. It's there. It's so- crazy
2: when when someone big sam has a reputation and that's the reputation some people love him some people don't but what he did was embrace this thinking and in and, and the more outlier type of thoughts back in the mid 90s that no one else wanted to know about you know what did what did we say about oh no man that's voodoo yeah wasn't uh, that what Sugar Ray Leonard yeah, said so to Sugar us? Sugar Ray Leonard said it was say, it back then, then that, that was all the compute, all this that sort of thing that we're stuff. discussing. Right. Whoa, voodoo stuff, man. He wasn't having it. Right. And I, it's interesting, that kind of echo still vibrates today. And I'd be surprised. All right, here's a question. Do you think there's room for a data poor player in elite
3: football? A data poor player, do you say? Correct, yes. One who doesn't pay attention? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you're a player who's talented and you work very hard, you should not need to pay attention because the coaches are going to take the insights on board and then convey them to you, right? right. right. They, they, you know, there are some players who are going to be able to consume that stuff directly, and there are some players who may need an interpreter, just like there are some coaches who may need an interpreter. Gotcha. Yeah. And, 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 and that's fine because if they still have ability, you need to be able to incorporate that. Now, how about betting?
2: I'm, I'm, I just... you, you can't help but monetize this, can you? Yeah, all right.
1: It's got it's got it's like. What do you do? And can predictive analytics actually help? The better, and then are you going to have guys that are just getting into this so that they can lay money on the line and perhaps make some dough? Already have, yeah. Really, there are there are
3: plenty of guys who have, yeah. And and what's interesting is some of those guys have gone on to buy clubs as well. Get Um, out. (laughs) Yeah, Matthew Benham at Brentford and Michelin and Tony Bloom at Brighton, another one of your former clubs. Yeah, I know them. I know them. Uh, these, these are guys who made their money uh, in betting on football and sometimes other sports, and now they're running their clubs with an analytics bent. And I've so wasted definitely- my life! No, you haven't. I
1: have wasted my life! No, oh, you <laughs>
3: haven't. That, so- that's what I'm actually looking to do, too. I, I, I have a group of investors I'm putting together, and we want to buy a club because we think one of the best ways to monetize my analytics platform is to take a club from a lower division in Europe and get it promoted to a higher division where it's going to have a lot more value.
1: Well, something tells me you're going to be damn successful, sir. Oh, I'll tell
2: you what, (laughs) Dan, Dan, we we must have another conversation. Yeah, man. That won't be recorded. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to have that conversation. It has been a pleasure, sir. Hey, Dan, man, thanks so much. What a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and thank you for bringing your mind to my game. I don't it's own been my it. It's thank been a pleasure.
3: game. Yeah. Oh, uh,
2: on the shoulders of giants, as we all stand. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dan Altman. Yeah, Dan Altman. Who man. knew you'd like soccer? Dude. Only because you would bet on it and get it, lots of yeah, money.
1: damn right, buddy. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I'm changing my whole career. I'm changing it all. I'm going right into sports betting, and I'm using analytics, and I'm buying a soccer team.
2: Or should I say, a football club. I'm going to play you a Pink Floyd track <laughs> called Money. That might just dampen your thoughts. For a while. Right, we're gonna take that break. Fabulous Dan Altman has been our guest, and when we come back, we'll have the fabulous Dr. Howard Hamilton, another data analyst for football. Um, can't get enough, can we? Back in a minute.
3: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently.
2: Welcome back to Playing With Science. This is my running around in my own backyard, nerding out like a true geek. (laughs) We have spoke to Dan Outman from Yard Analytics, and I can say now we have the privilege and pleasure to speak to another sports analyst, Dr. Howard Hamilton, founder and CEO of SoccerMetrics soccer Research.
1: Metrics Research. What a yeah. great name, Isn't too. that good?
2: All right, let's get straight into us. Tell us about soccer metrics how it came to be, and where it is headed right now.
0: So SoccerMetrics is a data analytics firm that um, performs quantitative analysis on data that the football industry uses every day. That the football use, football industry generates and uses every day from team performance, player performance, um, team and player valuation, um, uh, op- operational statistics related to the, perfor- the performance of leagues, uh, the performance at, of teams at the front office. Um, if it involves data of any sort, I'm interested in analyzing it and generating actionable information. So like it's that. not
2: it's not just focusing on the game, the players, the outcome, and why. It might be things into the front office. So wow. for things like ticket sales, uh, uh, um, other areas like that, have I got that wrong?
0: Yeah, ticket sales is part of it. Um, there was one project I did uh, very early on where I was looking at, um, you know, the sensitivity of ticket sales to the current record of a sports team, and and, and there was some interest in that. I presented a project. I presented that work at uh, Penn Wharton about five six years ago, and okay. there was some interest from StubHub uh, on that. It was act, It was using StubHub's data. Um, the front office work more relates toward uh, a benchmarking analysis. Uh, there is there was a professor out of the UK named uh, Bill Gerard. He was a, uh, um, he's worked with Billy Bean um, mm-hmm. on a number of projects from Oakland A's to AZ, uh Alkmark. And he he created a systematic, he created a benchmarking analysis of the performance that teams got relative to the, the amount of financial resources they were putting in. Okay, so, let's, let's take a step um, back. The, Just amount, to... the amount of points that took the to win, uh, the amount of the amount of payroll that took to win a match or a league point. And I applied that to major league soccer.
2: All right. Okay. Let's take a step back. Not a, not a big one. You mentioned, you mentioned the B word, the Billy, Billy Bean, um, AZ Alkmaar, Chuck is a professional team in the Dutch league right? at a division. And I'm not mistaken. Billy has joined a group that's bought a football club in England, Barnsley in Yorkshire. Uh, is football money 2.0 as we've been thinking it is is it ripe for the kind of money ball scenario that we saw the Oakland days and what is now prevalent through Major League Baseball?
0: I think you've seen it in a number of, of places um, you know Matthew Benham you know and, and his clubs from North Zealand to uh, to Brentford you know, have have employed I guess a money ball type approach. They had a head of of a football strategy, uh Ted Knutsen, um who who started uh stats bomb, um, yes. he has done a lot of work with Matt, Matthew Benham. Um Barnsley I'm not really aware aware of. Oh well um, look,
2: we don't have to focus uh, on that. Let let's uh, come let's come out of uh, that scenario. Then,
0: um but, but I would say to to answer your question, I I would say that it's it's right for it, but it's a, very, it's, a, it's a very gradual process right now. I think uh-huh. there's still a lot of cultural resistance to it. Yeah, not, not totally unfounded in my view, but I think that there will be some cultural resistance to that.
1: So let me, let's switch gears for a second because yeah. I want to ask you about some of the stuff that you've done. I was looking at your website and some of the things where you, you did an, uh, uh, an analysis of effective playing time in the World Cup for different referees and players, I mean, I'm sorry, and teams with those particular officials. What what do you do with that as a coach? Like, do you actually prepare in your game plan for the officials that will be officiating and does that uh, – do, do you – Plan on your teams being more rested or more taxed, or what? Like, you know, why? Why do you do something like that? As it's I'm,
2: it's interesting, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer to that because, as a as a former player, whoever <sighs> is the referee on the game uh-huh. can not always make a big difference.
0: It, you know, it's interesting you talk about that analysis, and I've I've applied that analysis to various competitions from. Major League Soccer to the English Premier League, to Japan's J League and to the World Cup. And what I found out was that um, the, the identity of the referee really doesn't make that much of a difference as to the as to the amount of effective playing time. Okay. The, it's the two teams that make more of a difference. Um, for example, for example, you know going back a few years in the Premier League. Any match involving Stoke involve, involving Stoke City would almost always have a playing effective playing time of less than um, of, le- of less than fifty five minutes, which wow. is well below mm-hmm. the Premier League average. And if you know, I remember sharing that with some people in the Premier League, and without my communicating which team was associated with the least amount of effective playing time they all said, I'm sure Stoke City is at the bottom, and and, and they were. Um, I, think where, I think where the referee is important is in the amount of, um, say, time between stoppages, um, because that's where the time between stoppages, time between fouls, because fouls are those events that the referee is actively involved mm. in stopping play. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of matches where again, that's that's a function of the two teams that are involved. Um, but the referee has some input in that as well. Um, uh, yeah, so, so so I think the referee matters more as to the amount of flow in the match, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, the amount of effective time that is actually being played. Some
2: of the work you did, and thank you for explaining that, um... Some of the work you did regarding the World Cup we've just seen in the summer in Russia, um, and, and this, this caught my eye. Um, so please explain. As regards the passing networks that are produced and provided by a number of sites, yours included, please explain to Chuck, myself, and probably our listeners, <coughs> what is an eigenvector centrality? Because I'll be honest with you, Howard, it sounds as if you stole that from an episode of Star Trek. Ooh, I like it now. You know what I mean? <laughs> it does, cotton, it's a a, cup, I can't it get straight out of Gene them. Roddenberry's
1: textbook yeah, that's for sure. So please explain. She'll never funny. hold cotton. She'll never that hold That is the worst Scottish accent. Ever. <laughs> that's not a Scottish accent. That's actually Scotty from Star Trek. <laughs> see, see, see? See he got still, it. Still not, still not good. Sorry,
2: Howard, please. The I the eigenvector centrality.
1: See now that's a Sean Connery of Scottish it's Sean accent. Connery. Yes. yes.
2: See, please, we've interrupted his. Answer. Go ahead. Go
0: ahead. In network in network theory, where you have you you have these nodes, and I'll I'll just make it really specific to passing networks. Okay. So networks consist of nodes and edges. Your edges are the passes. Your nodes are the players, and your edges are the passes between uh, between each player. You can represent this in various ways. Um, You can you can represent those nodes and edges in terms of a matrix, Um, just some numerical representation of of this network. Now, the the eigenvector is um, this is real scientific math. I'll I'll generalize it.
2: No, no, be as deep uh, as you wish. Seriously, be as deep as you wish.
0: it's a It's a representation of of that metric uh, of that matrix, and centrality is the the relative importance of each node to uh, to the network hmm. and eigenvector centrality is one specific type of of measure of importance of a node in our case a player to the passing network so the reason why I used an eigenvector uh, centrality was that it represented the player who is most important to um, to the success or um, the structure of that network. If that player wasn't present in the passing network, in that in the passing network, that passing network would look significantly different, and. Um, Yes, there, there's some natural variation from match to match, but even the World Cup, where you have a minimum of three matches, um, some teams play four up to seven. Yeah, you can still identify those players who have a who have a consistent impact on the success of their passing network. Uh, South Korea is one example. Um, Through Son. Uh, yeah, Song. Yeah, yep. Son was. Son is by far the most important player of the passing network, which is extremely unusual. Because he's a forward Son, player. Yeah, because Son's a forward player.
2: Interesting. So what, I mean, it's funny. I would watch the it game, you- and then what, what someone like Howard would do was quantify it numerically. Mm-hmm. Quantify it in, um, if you've seen ever seen a passing network, it's a diagram. Yeah. And 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 you can then visualize, but what- It looks like 30 NFL plays. Layered on top of one another. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then what happens is from the analytics point of view, if you realize South Korea are using Son as one of these points, these nodes in an advanced area, you then structure your team to disable that to happen Mm -hmm. while they are trying to construct every way to enable Son to do his thing. So it's quite interesting the way I would look at that. But what howard does and he's he's uh he's the like that's out there they show you in a visual form that's easily condensable interesting let me ask you this yeah okay so france won the world
1: cup right mm. and, right right and so everybody was just like wow france won the world cup wow okay because oh. you know that's that oh, no congratulations yeah, yeah congratulations and by the way johnny Johnny Bonhomme is in uh, our uh, control room. He's our producer of this show and he is, he is French. So, you know, I'm sure he's very happy. He's like a thumbs up right now. But here's what I want to know. Was France, from an analytics standpoint, the best team to oh. win the World Cup? Because everybody was like, whoa, France won the World Cup. Wow, but from an analytics standpoint,
0: should they have won the World Cup? I think France are the most consistent team at the World Cup. I think this World Cup was was very inconsistent on a number of levels, which made it entertaining for us mm. at, as fans. I think this was one of the most unpredictable World Cups in a while. Like Germany not making it out of the group stage for the first time in 80 years. Um, you know, Spain, you know, Spain falling stage that they did. You know, England going all the way to the semi final. Um, yeah, you know, a team. You know, there were very you know Argentina, uh, Argentina imploding, mm. Brazil not make not well, making impact. Well, Brazil. Pass sta-
2: I read Brazil's stats that you produced, and Brazil's stats were as spectacular as their failure.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, totally. If I think if you looked at you know, the expected goal figures, not just on the, not just on expected goals scored, but also expected goals allowed, Brazil was way out in front yeah. on, in both statistical categories. Neymar. You know, I think if Neymar had advanced to, if Neymar and Brazil had advanced to the, the finals, I think he would almost certainly have been seen as the best player in the tournament. Mm. Um, but their, their their conversion rate was abysmal, uh, which is part of the reason why they didn't advance I, I think If you looked at that match against Belgium, you could see that. I think France, it, France are a good team. They're, they're a really solid team. They had the best. Um, um. I'm sorry. The I'm sorry. Do- Dr.
1: Hamilton. They would kind of take issue with that. Uh, you say they're a good team. They would say we're the best effing team because we won the World Cup. So the thing is, I mean, <laughs> no, that's, no, they're,
0: no they're, they're totally they're totally to say that. So it's okay. interesting.
2: It's interesting. Here, here, Chuck. Sixteen point three percent doesn't sound a lot, does it? When no. you, you know, we always talk about a hundred percent. That was France's conversion rate. From chances created to chances converted into goals. And the team that's won the World Cup has less than 20% conversion rate. Is that because everyone is useless? Or, Doctor, is the game of football that we know and love proving to be a lot harder than people give it credit for? And that's why the score isn't 110 versus 103. It's possibly 1-0 or 2-1.
0: I think it's always been like that I, I if you look at if you look at um, competitions in soccer from domestic competitions to continental competitions, national team competitions, at best the conversion rate from shots to goals is around ten percent, mm-hmm. maybe eleven twelve percent if it's a higher scoring league or your defenses are are garbage um mm-hmm. So to have a conversion rate of 15% or 18% or more is, is really fantastic for a team, especially at an international level where you don't get a lot of chances to score. Um, you know, if you're converting at greater than a 12% clip, you're putting yourself in a really good position to go really far in a tournament and ultimately win it.
1: Okay. Well, there you go. There you have it. Dr. Uh, so Howard basically, Hamilton. Basically, here's the uh, Johnny. Johnny, our producer, is looking through the glass here. Johnny, what everybody in the uh, seems to be saying is uh, France got lucky, so enjoy it. It's not going to happen again. Okay. So, Dr. Hamilton, <laughs> thank All you right. so
2: much. You're right. It just might. <laughs> oh, he just might. You yeah. never know. Yeah. Um, can happen. <laughs> of course. Um, I'm joking. What a pleasure! Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, the new word of the day is eigenvector. 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 Oh right. Okay. Eigenvector. <laughs> <I've been> eigenvector. <laughs> this is the first time he's done it in the show. He's got to get it out of his system. All righty. Thank you so much to Dr. Howard Hamilton um, from Soccer Metrics. Been a pleasure to talk to him. So Chuck, we have learned a lot. Yeah, it's
1: been. A- and
2: we have still only. Scratch the, the surface. surface. And we have learnt that there are some silly names attached to football that have nothing to do with the game itself but make it all the more interesting. Absol- the eigenvector.
1: Eigenvector.
2: <laughs> all right. Hyven, so- flavin <laughs> Yes. Right. Well, I recover from Chuck's outburst. Uh, I'd like to say I've been Gary O'Reilly, and I've been Chuck Nice. Really? <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, and this has been playing with science and my little nerd geek fest on football, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. I hope you have too, and we look forward to your company very, very soon. At
3: Capella University.